Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, what do you want? Why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? And they left the city and were on their way to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. If one draws a line from Jerusalem straight north to Capernaum, it's almost exactly 80 miles. If one follows that line northward from Jerusalem to Sychar, one has gone almost exactly halfway, 40 miles. From Jerusalem to Sychar, 40 miles. From Sychar on to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, another 40 miles. Now, those of you who are power walkers who walk to get good aerobic benefit, try to do a mile in 15 minutes. But if you're going to walk 80 miles, you're not doing 15-minute miles. You're more likely doing 20-minute miles if you're a good walker. Which means that if Jesus and his disciples had left Jerusalem at sunrise that morning, by noon they've walked 18 to 20 miles. He's tired. He sits down by the well. His disciples go into the little village to buy food, and as he sits there, a woman comes and starts drawing water. Dr. Raymond Brown at Yale says, This well is still there. It is, in fact, 100 feet down to the water. Jesus asked her, May I have a drink? Who do you think you are? She asked. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't eat from the same vessels. We don't drink from the same vessels. Oh, but if you knew who I am, you would ask me for a drink, and I would give you a drink of water. You would never be thirsty again. Oh, really, she said. Well, give me some of that water. I have to come and draw every day. Now, John has noted for us that this whole conversation is taking place at noon. It was women's work to draw water, to carry water, but not in the middle of the day when it's terribly hot. Women usually drew water early in the morning, late in the afternoon. She has come all alone from the village. Is she ostracized from the other women? Perhaps so, because Jesus says, well, go bring your husband. I will give both of you a drink of this living water. Now, the word translated here, living water, means fresh, like a spring, 
One translator, Eugene Peterson, calls it artesian water. The other kind is in a cistern. It's been trapped the last big rainfall. It's been sitting there. It starts to taste a little stale, even if it's safe to drink. Do you want cistern water? Do you want spring water? This spring water I will give to you and your husband. I don't have a husband, she said. I know, he said. You've had five. You're living with a sixth man you've not even bothered to marry. Wow, she thought. So she talks on with him a little bit more. But my people, she said, worship on this mountain, Gerizim. Your people worship on Moriah in Jerusalem. Jesus said the time is coming when you will not worship on this mountain or that mountain. You will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. For the Lord is spirit. Well, she said, I know when Messiah comes, this will be true. And he answers, I am the one who is speaking to you. I've underlined four things here. First, as John tells the story, he says, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, that's not true. He didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, it would have been a much flatter walk had he gone along the Mediterranean. It's perfectly flat. Had he gone up the Jordan River Road, it's a gradual ascendancy to the Sea of Galilee from the Dead Sea, but not dramatic enough that it would appear so if you're going to walk as far as 80 miles. Hardly uphill at all. If one goes through the middle of this little country, and remember it's only 50 miles from the Mediterranean to the Jordan River, but right through the middle of the country, there are a series of little hills. Now, these are not Rocky Mountains. These are not the Alps. They're Turkey Mountain across the river where Channel H Tower is. Just hills. But you either have to go up and down, over, or you go around. You remember what the road from Tulsa to Springdale, Arkansas used to look like? He doesn't have to go through Samaria Unless one looks carefully at the verb here, and the verb here is hade in Greek, which usually has to do with really special purpose. And John is saying God was so commanding, Jesus had to go into Samaria. Dr. Rudolf Bultmann wrote the divine, authentic revealer is looking for a witness even among an enemy people. Now, why were they enemies? You have to go all the way back to 721 before the Common Era. These ten northern tribes of Israel had wandered far from the Torah. They had been led by one bad king or queen after another. We epitomized that long rule of bad queens and kings with Jezebel and her husband Ahab. These were really bad folks. And finally, God dealt with them by letting the Assyrians conquer them. They burned their towns to the ground. They raped, plundered, intermarried their women so that they ceased to exist as a separate people. We speak even today of the ten lost tribes of Israel. They simply were merged into the Assyrian culture. So Jesus is dealing with a people, in this case, one woman of mixed blood. More than 700 years of mixed blood. It was not only that, these mixed-blooded folk, not Jew any longer, 
had decided, well, those Jews think there's something special. They've got that beautiful temple on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. We can do just as well. And so on Gerizim, they had built another temple. The Jews believed this was blasphemy. There's only one true God. And this one true God came to meet his people at the temple in Jerusalem. So in the year 128, before the Common Era, they marched up the hill and burned the temple to the ground. The Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along. But John said, God sent Jesus to Samaria. Because these are cousins. And if they don't know that, they are cousin because they are all children of one God. God cares about all of God's children. You read Kudzu? I've been telling you, you need to read Kudzu. In morning at breakfast, I read Kudzu. Marlette does a good job with that because most of the time he's picking on somebody other than Methodist. He really takes it to the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians. I've got a feeling he is an Episcopalian. He gives them a lot of trouble. But one day this week, he had the reverend, who's the key character here, talking to God. And he said to God, God, your popularity has now dropped below 50% in the latest poll. And there's a big bolt of lightning. And in the next frame, you just see this big old hat of the reverend with smoke coming out from under it. And he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not too taken with polls. So in this case, whether somebody liked the Samaritan woman or didn't like the Samaritan woman, God loved her. She was a daughter of his, as every man in this country was a son of his. And God cared. Jesus had to go into Samaria. Number two, the disciples were astonished. He was talking to a woman. There are still Christians today who are astonished that God speaks through women. That we ordain them. That we have women district superintendents. That we have women bishops. That we have lots of women professors in our theology schools. Oklahoma's come a long way the last few years. When we arrived here 27 years ago, one of the big debates in the Tulsa world was whether girls had the stamina to play full court basketball. Remember that? You had to have three girls on one end of the court who were defense. The other team had their three offensive players there. On the opposite end of the court, you had the other team's defense and your offense. These three girls could dribble only to the center court, pass it across, and the other three would take over from there. Women didn't have the stamina to run a whole basketball court. Did you watch any of the Big 12 tournament this week? <laughs> I was working on this sermon the other night. I tuned in to watch OU girls, women play Baylor. Boy, did they go up and down the court, up and down the court, up and down the court, up and down the court. I was really impressed with the little Native American woman. Huh? She's just a freshman. She's barely 18 years old. She looks shorter than anybody else on the court. Jenna Plumley. She was in and out, almost between people's legs, still dribbling, still dribbling, making free throws. It was unbelievable. She went almost 40 minutes up and down the court. Didn't seem to be breathing hard when the game was over. But it's not only in Oklahoma, of course. Thirty years ago, 
in Texas and Beaumont, one of my jogging buddies had been an all-state football player in Amarillo, Texas. He grew up on a big ranch out there, and he was an all-state football player. He went on to West Texas State at Canyon and got his degree in engineering there and again was an outstanding fullback on offense, played inside linebacker on defense. He was just the right age then to be drafted into the Vietnam War. He was with the 1st Air Cav, one of the toughest units American soldiers have. When he got back from the war, his big company, big chemical company, sent him to Beaumont, Texas, and he and his wife joined our church, and he became one of my jogging buddies. Late in the afternoon, we'd meet at the YMCA there, and we would go running. And then we'd go in the weight room, and he would really work hard with all the weights. Well, one year while we were there, it was announced that one of the biggest appliance chains in our area, Cons Appliances, was going to sponsor a Thanksgiving run, 6.2 miles. And in our running late one afternoon, somebody said, Lonnie, you going to win that race? He said, well, I'd have a chance. Well, you might have a chance, but Lydia's coming. Who's Lydia, he asked. I knew who Lydia was. Lydia was the daughter of the pastor of the First Methodist Church in Beaumont. I was at the biggest suburban church we had. The downtown pastor's daughter was named Lydia, and she had won race after race in high school and was now running cross-country for the University of Houston. Lonnie said, no woman has ever beaten me at anything. Well, you know what happened. <laughs> 10,000 meters is a long way, 6.2 miles. And that Thanksgiving morning when the gun sounded, Lonnie was determined he was going to lead from start to finish. And at the six-mile mark, he was still ahead. And somebody screamed, here she comes. <laughs> and Lonnie ran as hard as he could. Now, he's carrying 210 pounds. And about a hundred yards shy of the finish line, he went down flat on his face, out cold as could be. Mr. Kahn, who was sponsoring this race, rushed over with his Jaguar. They put Lonnie in the back seat. He threw up in the car on the way to the hospital. He nearly died. Lydia nearly killed him. <laughs> she weighed about 95 pounds, but she could fly. Well, we discovered women can run a long way, and they can run really fast. But we also discovered they are marvelous students. Fifty-two percent of the students in American colleges and universities today are female, 48 percent male. In graduate schools, the same percentage holds. For almost 10 years, we have graduated more women than we have men from all of our institutions of higher learning when they're combined in our schools of medicine, schools of law, theology school, pick one, 50-50 or more female. But a long time ago, they were amazed. He spoke to a woman. Dr. Gail O'Day has written a commentary on this book, and she said, Jesus took this woman seriously. He did not judge her. He treated her as a serious partner in conversation. Number three. This living water that gushes up, our translation says. This is the word halosthi. 
It appears a number of times in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures called the Septuagint. It appears a few times in the Christian scriptures. This is the only time in either one that it's used in regard to water. It's usually about the Holy Spirit. In the Hebrew scriptures, it says when Samson had been blinded and asked if he could turn again to the one true God and maybe take down lots of his pagan enemies at the same time, he asked God to help him as he placed his hands on the two major columns of a pagan temple and the Holy Spirit gushed up within him. When Israel decided they needed a king, like all of their neighbors had kings, Samuel laid his hands on Saul and the Holy Spirit gushed up within him. When Saul proved to be a not so good king, Samuel was sent to find another. And when he saw the boy David at a little nowhere place called Bethlehem, he laid his hands on his head and the Holy Spirit, Palestine, gushed up within David. That's the way it's usually used. There's a new book out called Letters of Faith in Times of War. The collector has gathered letters not only from Iraq, Afghanistan, from the first Persian Gulf War, from Vietnam, from Korea, from World War II, from World War I. And the letters that have been collected are not just help me get home again. They're letters by military people who realized God is probably not choosing sides here so much as he's helping people of faith individually and therefore in some sense collectively to do the right things. Let me read you just a few little excerpts here. This one from Iraq. Dad, I believe I've had a new experience with God. I just pray that I will make a difference in the lives of others. I pray that I'm a good example as a man of Christ. This is a young Texan. He was killed a week later. Lieutenant Colonel Scott Barnes, writing also from Iraq. There are a lot of folks who ask, where is God? I believe he's in the will of the sergeants helping organize a blood drive as only they can. He's in the hearts of the soldiers who immediately roll up their sleeves to give what they have to save a dying brother or sister whom they don't even know. Colonel Barnes had seen the worst of human nature in a war zone, but in the selflessness of brothers and sisters, he had also witnessed the best. Walter Bromwich, writing back in World War I to his preacher, said, I believe God is in this war, not as a spectator, but backing up everything that is good in us. I don't believe he's going to work any miracles because that would be helping us do the work he's given us to do. I don't know whether God goes forth with armies or not, but I do know that he's in the hearts and minds of lots of men who are trying hard to do the right things. Number four. Number four. Your translation says that Jesus looked at this woman after she had said, I believe Messiah is coming, and he said, I am he. He doesn't have that second pronoun, he in the Greek. He said to her, I am. And as John writes it, he knows it will trigger in our minds Exodus, Moses of the burning bush, asking the name of God and God saying, 
I am who I am. I believe that Messiah will come. I am the one speaking to you. Friday night, Gail and I went to see Man of La Mancha. We've seen it many times through the years. Richard Kiley was the man from La Mancha when we first saw it in Houston 35 years ago. One of the first plays we saw after we came to Tulsa uh, was Man of La Mancha. Our Dr. Marilyn Carver was playing Aldanza in that production. Carl Seibert was playing Sancho. Some of our Methodist folks were right in the heart of that production. I remember when our own church did it here, Dan Dale, such an outstanding man of La Mancha. Our Jane Smith was Aldanza. You remember the story about people in prison during the Inquisition. When one group of prisoners decides to try another for being a poet, an idealist, because they really want what's in his chest that he's brought along, they are sure it's filled with gold when in fact he's not only a poet, He's an actor. It's filled with false eyebrows and false beards and false swords. You remember they're trying him for being an idealist and he says he's guilty. Right off he said, I'm guilty. I never had the courage to believe in nothing. Some people see a windmill. He sees a force of evil. Some people see a tavern on the hill. He sees a castle. Some see a shaving basin. He sees a golden helmet. Some people see a barmaid and prostitute. He calls her a beautiful virgin, a woman of the light, Dulcinea. At the end, he's dying. And the man chosen to play the padre starts to sing. It says in the program simply a psalm. He sings in Latin. Ninety-eight percent of the people there Friday night probably didn't have a clue what he was singing. I had to take Latin in college. I know this psalm. De Profundis, it's called. Out of the depths we cry unto thee, O Lord, Lord, hear our prayers. If thou shouldst mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that we may be saved and thou mayest be feared. We wait, we wait for thee. More than a watchman waits for the dawn. We wait for thee. I am, he said, the one speaking to you even now. Amen.